1: We are optimistic, lighthearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that.
0: In this week's show, I am delighted to welcome Katie Bradbury. Katie is a registered nurse with experience in gynaecology, dealing with early pregnancy, endometriosis, OHSS, fibroids, unexplained fertility, and more. She's now a practicing nutritional therapist, who works with women and couples that are trying to conceive, whether naturally or using reproductive technology? Katie has made it her mission to give anyone who wants to be a mother the best possible chance of doing so by advocating nutritional, emotional, and practical support for women as they embark on their pre and postnatal journey. Welcome, Katie. It's great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me, Maria. Katie, I think one of the really important things for our listeners to understand is what the difference is between someone that says, you know, they know a little bit about diet and an actual well-qualified nutritionist. So in a nutshell, would you mind telling us what is the difference between a dietitian or someone that says they know about diet and a well-qualified nutritionist like yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a critical difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian. And a dietitian is someone who is qualified to work in the NHS, And the reason for that is because they've done a degree in dietetics. And what that means is they are equipped to be able to understand what a sick body might need in terms of meeting the body's basic nutrient requirements. So a dietitian, for example, might work either in the hospital or in the community with someone who perhaps has cancer or is critically unwell, What a dietitian is really good at is understanding what level of macronutrients that individual and what level of calories that individual might need in order to, to sustain their bodies. Differently to that is a nutritionist. Someone who has trained in nutrition has learned a lot about the macronutrients but also all of the micronutrients in relation to their role in the body and health and also really critically we've learned about all the different systems in the body the way they communicate and what some of the key underlying drivers might be for certain illnesses or disease states in the modern world our role is really about doing the detective work and working on the underlying drivers and using food and often supplements as well and lifestyle as a healing modality and encouraging the body to heal. Then you've got, I guess the contentious point is then people who are finishing out food or diet advice who aren't necessarily qualified. And slightly frustrating me for us nutritionists is that it's not necessarily a a protected term and so people can call themselves a nutritionist or a nutrition advisor or qualified in nutrition and what that might mean is that they've done a five-hour online course so you know i think if you are considering working with someone to support your nutrition it's really worthwhile just checking in with them to see what kind of qualifications they might have and what kind of skills and experience they can support you with
0: yeah i think that's massively important thank you for telling us the difference between the two And on that note of experience, would you mind just giving us a little bit of information about a client that you've helped become pregnant?
2: And I'm going to give you the example of a client who I was just texting a couple of days ago because she's just hit her 12th week of, of pregnancy, which has been a massive milestone for her. Hooray! Um, Which is lovely. And actually for her, this pregnancy has been a bit of a, a miracle pregnancy because she came to me in the summer and her issue wasn't getting pregnant, it was staying pregnant. Every time she got pregnant, she would lose that baby early on. When she came to me, she just said, I don't know how much more of this I can take. I can't deal with this pain and this hope and then to be crushed. And when someone comes to me, whether it's one loss or multiple losses, there are a number of key things that I always want to look at. First of all, I want to make sure that their thyroid is in order. Second of all, I want to look at their genetics because there is a a cellular process called methylation that is critically important in transcribing genetics. In that early fetal development, the way that our body methylates is critically important. So doing a genetic methylation panel can give us some really important insights. I also want to know, ideally, what their partner's DNA fragmentation is looking like, because again, there's more and more literature now connecting the level of DNA damage in a man's sperm to miscarriage or recurrent miscarriage so there are a few key things for anyone that's come to me with losses that i want to know about because if we know what's going on and and we can then deal with what's going on if we know the specifics then we're going to be drastically increasing the likelihood that they're going to have a successful pregnancy the the final thing that i want to know about in the case of, of loss is the vaginal microbiome so we ran all of those panels and one of This person's losses had actually been an ectopic. And so she'd had one of her fallopian tubes removed, which for her meant that, again, she only had half the chance of conceiving naturally because she only had one fallopian tube. We did all of our work together. It was really, really difficult. This is half of the battle for us fertility nutritionists sometimes is trying to persuade people to stop trying to conceive while we work together. And it can seem so counterintuitive because when all you want is to have a baby and believe me, I know how this feels. When all you want is to have a baby, you want it like yesterday, right? So you, you don't necessarily want to be told you need to stop. But actually for me, if I found something in one of those tests that I just mentioned that I know wouldn't be conducive to having a healthy pregnancy, then what? You know, we've got a massive ethical dilemma. So we always say to people, look, If you're serious about doing this and doing these investigations, let's do it. Let's do it together. And then depending on what we find, then there will be a point where we will say, okay, yeah, we're happy to give you the go ahead. Or actually I really think based on this, that we should hang fire for a few months or however long it is while we work on addressing the issues that we found and then try. So we did do some work together. We did some of these investigations. Some things were absolutely great and some things needed addressing. She got the all clear and uh, miraculously, as per her history, she got pregnant immediately again. But of course, we were all on tenterhooks. And this time around, she's made it to the 12-week mark, which she never had before. And she's had multiple scans and her little baby's doing incredibly well. So it's it's a really beautiful story.
0: That's amazing. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, congratulations to you both and everything's crossed for her.
1: Thank you. I know someone as well that could get pregnant very, very easily. We'd lose pregnancy after pregnancy and it's Mm. just soul destroying. Oh, it's crushing. Also, how brave of you both. And it is brave to say, we're going to stop. Let's take a step back and let's Mm. see if we can get some more information in. Everyone knows that the clock is always ticking when it comes to fertility. And unfortunately, it doesn't stop for anyone.
2: Mm.
1: I'm always really interested in the thyroid. Why is the thyroid so key to fertility?
2: Yeah, really great question. The thyroid is one of the the central organ systems and it acts in a complete web with, and it sits almost on a triangular axis, our thyroid, um, our ovaries, and our adrenal glands, which produce our stress hormones. So this is why part of the reason why everyone talks about stress in relation to fertility. The hypothalamus and pituitary glands, which are like our, our master processes, if you like, they control everything. Those glands in the brain sit on the same axis as the thyroid, the ovaries, and the adrenals and what that means is that each of those systems of hormones the thyroid hormones the sex hormones and the stress hormones they all correlate with one another they all talk to each other and when one is dialed up another can be dialed down etc cetera, etc cetera. they all speak to each other and so typically speaking if there is something wrong with the thyroid, sometimes that could be because that person's stress levels are so high. But then a knock-on effect is that that person might have, for example, an ovulatory cycles, because um, we need our thyroid hormones to to ovulate properly and to produce healthy eggs. And we also need our thyroid hormones to be functioning normally in order to sustain a healthy pregnancy. The thyroid is, is critically important. And what a lot of standard medical thyroid investigations neglect to pick up on is, believe it or not, the actual active thyroid hormone. So typically speaking, if someone says to me, yeah, I've had my thyroid tested by their fertility clinic or by the GP, it will usually only be TSH, which is not a thyroid hormone at all. It's thyroid stimulating hormone. So it's produced by the brain, not the thyroid. It comes before the thyroid hormone maybe if they're lucky, they might have T4 measured, which is thyroxine. And again, that is a thyroid hormone, but it's not the active thyroid hormone. So you're missing a key part of the picture, which is the T3, which is the active thyroid hormone. And that's the one that really matters. Equally, it can be missing your thyroid antibodies. And if we've got an autoimmune presentation within the thyroid, there's a whole new set of considerations to be thinking about. When I'm looking at a thyroid panel with anybody, I will usually have to say, thanks, it's really helpful for us to know the TSH. But actually, we really do want to be delving deeper and looking at the complete thyroid picture.
0: This is just fascinating. Honestly, I'm just sitting here thinking this, this seems insane to me. This is made more complicated question, but why is it not tested for?
2: And do you mean on the NHS for people in the UK? Cost will always be a factor for sure. When we are looking at any testing from the GP budget will always be a uh, in mind. So typically it's very difficult, nigh on impossible for a GP to actually order a complete thyroid panel with, with antibodies and with T3. But what a lot of doctors might argue is thyroid hormones work on a feedback loop if your brain is picking up on there being adequate levels of thyroid hormone in the bloodstream, then TSH will be up or down regulated. So in theory, we should be able to tell the state of the thyroid from just the TSH alone. But actually, what that relies on is all of those mechanisms north and south of that TSH to be working properly. And a lot of the time they're not. And a lot of the time that person might be missing basic nutrients that are required to convert that thyroid hormone into the active thyroid hormones. For example, iodine, Iron, selenium, zinc are all required cofactors to actually be able to produce those thyroid hormones in the first place. So, what seems like a really simple thing, oh, yeah, I've had my thyroid checked. Actually, there's a whole world that could be unpicked just from that alone. What, if any, tests are done
1: for clients that are coming to you? Is there a standard sort of set of tests that the GPs tend to do?
2: People that come to me and people that come to people like me are typically at many, many different stages of their journey. For us, in an ideal world, we want to see people as early on as possible because we could save people so much heartache. The reality is most people, by the time they come to us, they've explored so many different avenues. Maybe they have had some investigations done and have got quote-unquote unexplained infertility, which I don't really believe is a thing, to be quite honest. Other people might have had failed rounds of IVF or are trying to prepare for a round of IVF. Other people that I mentioned earlier might have had losses. So it does vary, but... Typically speaking, in, I guess, a bog standard picture here in the UK, you know, if you are trying to conceive and if you're under 35, slightly quicker if you're over, but, you know, usually you have to play the waiting game. First line is some basic hormone testing. Typically speaking, that would be a progesterone test, a day 21 test. Again, it's a contentious one for all sorts of reasons because mm-hmm. sometimes people aren't even told what day to go and could get that test done. And so they're none the wiser. They might go on day two. It's a day 21 progesterone test. Essentially, it's meant to be done five to seven days after ovulation. But of course, we know that people ovulate at all different times in their cycle. Some people have anovulatory cycles. So to say it's a day 21 progesterone test, for a lot of people, myself included, when I was having it done, that Didn't really work. And even then, if it does work, all it does is give us an indication as to whether or not you ovulated that cycle. You know, it's, it's very, very limited information. The male partner might then be offered a semen analysis to check that out. Again, I can't tell you the amount of semen analyses I've seen where they've been told it's not a concern. And you look at the numbers and actually they're out of all of the WHO parameters, you end up banging your head against the brick wall sometimes. Following that, you know, if things are normal or if they're not normal, uh, you might be offered a scan or some structural investigations to look at your ovaries or your uterine lining, or perhaps if you're lucky to check your tubes. Ideally, both partners should also be offered a sexual health screen. And then from there then you might be uh, given access to a fertility clinic. But the fertility clinics are not usually there to investigate the underlying causes, apart from with the exception of these kind of structural investigations that can take place. Typically, they're there to say, okay. If you're not ovulating, can we try and induce ovulation using medications? Or if not, can we use some assisted reproductive technology to help you? The intention is great, and I'm not anti-IVF. I'm not anti-assisted reproductive technologies at all. I think they're incredible, but they don't give us any answers. And a lot of times I think that these treatments could be A, avoided or B, supported with the right actual investigations and the right support.
0: Sorry to interrupt, Katie, but with January fast approaching, I am delighted to announce that I am offering a virtual welcome evening on Wednesday, the 4th of January, where you can ask me any questions around Fitness for Fertility. I will be explaining how to get your BMI down and prepare for IVF in a fertility safe way. I'll also be explaining how my fitness fertility training works. All you need to do is head over to my website at fitnessfertility.com and click on the Try Before You Buy link and sign up for free. I look forward to seeing you all there. The day 21 test, I have spoken about so much on social media. Even when I was on Clomid, I still didn't ovulate on day 14, which meant the day 21 test was basically pointless because the levels were not appropriate for that time. There were some days where I maybe ovulated on day 20, but there was no point in having a day 21 test. I completely agree with you this idea about semen analysis. I mean we've spoken to so many people now and it's the men of the afterthought. And then when you look at the semen analysis a year in, two years in they're like, oh oh look you know your sperm isn't quite where we need it to be, but why haven't we tested you yet? for people that aren't sure, when you were talking about people getting their tubes tested, are you referring to the high cozy procedure? Mm, Yeah. Yes. Now, as someone that has had the high cozy procedure, Mm. so this is the one where they basically, they test to see if your tubes are blocked or not. I got an information leaflet in the post that said you may experience some discomfort with this. I would just like to say to any listeners that are about to have a high cozy, it is uncomfortable. So if you want to take some paracetamol, then I would strongly suggest that you do it. (laughs) What I wanted to know was, if you had a couple of symptoms, because people will be sitting here going, well, how do I know if I need to go to a nutritionist? Like, how do I know if I need to get tested? I know that you can't possibly list every possible symptom, I know that. Would you be able to tell us a couple of symptoms that people might be experiencing where maybe a nutritionist might be a good port of call?
2: One thing, which is a resource that I created for this very reason, is I've got a reproductive health checklist. It's a set of eight different sections and a list of symptoms that you might experience under each of those. And it's just a tick list and you can check the boxes. It can just help you to get a sense of which systems in your body might be under strain that then might be the things that you want to focus about. Some examples of that might include things that might seem completely unrelated, like if you get hormonal migraines chances are there are some hormonal imbalances going on in your body or that your body is reacting to hormones and having a histamine response to to certain hormonal shifts in your body and that means that your body's going to be in an inflammatory state and really inflammation is something that we talk about a lot in terms of the more low grade chronic inflammation, and that is a massive driver towards so many of the imbalances that we might see uh, in the body that can impact fertility. Yeah, it might be to do with headache, it might be to do with acne, it might be to do with if you get raging PMS or really painful periods, chances are something's not right. If you have had IVF and you don't respond to the IVF drugs in the way that's hoped, something's not right. I have a whole section on gut health as well. We haven't mentioned the gut yet today, but that is always the place that I start actually with any of my clients because our gut health, our gastrointestinal health from top to bottom tells us so much about the body as well. What are your bowel movements like even? Do you get gas and bloating? What is your gas and bloating pattern? Do you get acid reflux? All of these are signs that our body is giving us that we can then use to, to shape our, our understanding and our recommendations. Amazing. So we will happily point people in the direction of that guide
0: Cause I think it will be really useful for people. The other thing I wanted to pick up on was this idea of inflammation, So I just wanted to ask you, obviously a lot of our listeners suffer with PCOS. A lot of them suffer with endometriosis and obviously endometriosis is linked to inflammation. Do you work with clients with endometriosis and just very generally speaking, what type of information and advice might you give them around nutrition?
2: Endometriosis is a condition that we are yet to do a lot of our learning around. We are learning more and more, but it is a complex condition and there are still a lot of unanswered questions to it. And I think that in itself is testament to the fact that women's health is just such a a neglected area in medicine. Inflammation, there's no doubt that when we're thinking about underlying drivers, Typically speaking, we are often looking at an oestrogen dominance picture. Sometimes it might mean that the body is, for whatever reason, going on overdrive with its oestrogen production. Sometimes it might be that the oestrogen isn't kept in check by progesterone. So there's It's more of a progesterone deficiency, but that's not balancing out the estrogen. Sometimes it might be that they are over-aromatizing, so producing too much estrogen as a result of their testosterone. Their testosterone is over-converting to estrogen. Again, even within that estrogen dominance picture, there's so many things that we can be looking at to try and determine what's actually going on. But absolutely, the second point of the equation there is the inflammation, and the inflammation is... We want to be looking at the underlying drivers might be that person could be helpful to look at comprehensive blood work for them and make sure that there are no underlying nutrient deficiencies and that all of the other organs are looking okay. For example, the blood sugars, blood sugar balance is a massive driver for inflammation. Again, we take one kind of relatively simple point, we can break it up and start to investigate what is the situation for you. What is going on in your body? How does that correspond with your symptoms and your lived experience? We can look at it in depth, but we can also make, I guess, generic recommendations from an anti-inflammatory point of view. Typically speaking, those would include things like eating the rainbow. We say it all the time because it really does matter. And the reason it matters is because every single colour of the rainbow in nature, in plant foods, has a different phytochemical, has a different antioxidant property um, to offer the body. And what that means is that it's feeding the microbes that live in your gut. It's feeding them the right things and it's reducing oxidative stress in the body, which in turn is reducing inflammation. So I'm using a few technical terms there, but the take home messages by eating all of those different colors of the rainbow, we're almost firefighting. We're dampening down the impact of those flames of that inflammatory response. And another really, really important recommendation I mentioned the blood sugar balance already. Again, it's a bit of a generic term that might not mean much to many people, but when we're talking about blood sugar imbalances, we're talking about the way our body responds to Not just sugars, but also to simple carbohydrates. And often we will find that there is an imbalance there and that shifting towards more of the complex carbohydrates and away from those white carbs and those sugary carbs. You know, the amount of people that come to me who get that classic 3, 4 p.m. slump in the afternoon and they just need a sugary or a a white carb pick me up at that point in the afternoon, I get it. But that's not normal. That's not what we're looking for in terms of the body. And that is our body telling us that something's not right. Moving more towards the complex carbohydrate, making sure that you've got enough good quality protein in your diet. These are all the basics, but they're so important. And then really critically is making sure that you've got enough of the right kind of fat in your diet, specifically the omega-3 fatty acids. Katie, you know when you were saying about
1: the two, three o'clock slump and it's not normal, but I actually mm. think it's really normal. I think it's something that we all, we all pretty much suffer from. And I'm really interested in what is it about the way that we're eating means that we're kind of running out of energy, specifically at that time of the day.
2: Yeah, really interesting one, and I guess it's important to highlight there the difference between normal and common. True, common, absolutely, really, really common, but not normal, not what we're looking for. Because what that's a sign of is your body's crashing, your blood sugar levels are, are crashing at that point, and that's the point where you need an instant pick me up. And often at that point of the day, for a lot of people, if you gave them a chicken breast and said, "Here, eat this instead," they'd they'd laugh at you because at that point, all their body is crying out. For is something sugar, some fast release energy because just they've hit a brick wall. And I always say, if you get a three or four o'clock slump and that's what you need at that time of day, you need to actually start with breakfast. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Literally, what you're breaking your fast with in the morning and what you're putting into your body as the first thing after your overnight fast is the thing that then sets the precedent for the rest of the day. If you're having carbohydrate rich foods so it's like cereals and toasts and crumpets and all of those things that we love but they don't do our blood sugar levels any favors and even porridge i you know i hate to say it but one of my bugbears because porridge is, is a food that is really easy to get wrong because if you just have porridge with maybe some honey and maybe some fruit, you've got carbohydrate with sugar and then extra sugar from the fruit, and that is not a balanced way to start the day. We need, we need, need, need to have protein and fats, and ideally some vegetables uh, in the morning first thing, and that then sets the precedent for the rest of the day. A lot of our listeners will be here because they need to kind of get that twenty nine BMI,
0: mm-hmm. and so inevitably this idea of weight loss, basically for lack of a better term, comes up. So. What are your thoughts on fasting Mm -hmm. and then fertility? Because a lot of people will look at intermittent fasting and a 5-2 fasting diet. And then following on from that as a related
2: question, what would your ideal breakfast be? Because I love breakfast. On the weight loss piece, it's really important where I'm standing to be individualized. And I'm going to give you an example again of of one of my current clients at the moment. Um, She came to me like a lot of people do because they've been told by their fertility clinic, you know, you have to reach that, that certain BMI point. And so she came to me for some weight loss support prior to her next round of IVF. She was at a complete stalemate and she could not lose Weight. And guess what? She was having, I mean, her calories were really restricted. She was having a slim fast for breakfast. She was having a slim fast for lunch. And then she was having a a, a dinner, a homemade dinner. That was the only way that she could find, not to lose weight, but to maintain weight. That was the only thing that she could do. And she was desperate. And we started working together. And in the same way that, that I always do, I would do a really comprehensive assessment with that person to truly understand their body the way all of their systems in their body talk to each other and what they're eating and drinking now, their lifestyle, their work, their stress and everything else, and work together to find a plan. And we got this client eating real foods morning, noon and night. You know, she's she's eating three proper meals a day now. So she's eating far more in quantity than what she was previously. And she's lost almost a stone already. When it comes to weight loss, there is no one-size-fits-all approach because often with something like weight retention, it's a message. Something is happening in the body that it's not happy about and we need to try and figure out what's going on and get get to the root cause and then work from there. Sometimes we can be overfed but undernourished. We can be eating enough technically, but actually our body is calling out for nutrients because we don't have an, enough of a nutrient-dense diet. Our bodies end up holding on to every calorie that they can get i do think you need to be really careful with fasting because when we're looking again around weight loss for fertility we do need to be doing it in a safe way and often like crash diets when it comes to fertility a crash diets don't work anyway because you know all the research tells us that what you lose will go back on again sometimes threefold when your body is releasing fat it is also releasing toxins because our that is a way for our body to store some of the toxins that it might be exposed to. So we do need to be really, really careful and fat is metabolically active as well. It produces estrogen actually. We just need to be mindful about all of these things when we're on a weight loss journey and the fasting think can be okay for some people not for everyone for some people it can put their body under strain so i wouldn't really recommend going for any kind of extreme fasting regime whilst trying to conceive maybe like a 12 a 12 or a 10 14 not really much more than that
0: and i love the phrase overfed and undernourished i think that summarizes very nicely the situation that a lot of us find ourselves in amazing very good advice to everybody
1: but you didn't tell us what breakfast we should be having katie oh yes
2: oh breakfast okay i'm gonna tell you my my favorite breakfast that i have probably about five days a week is is egg egg of some description egg is just like my favorite breakfast food because a it's full of protein it's got some good cholesterol in it which we need to produce our sex hormones properly it's a complete protein in that it has all of the essential amino acids that we need. And it's also really filling and really versatile. So I'll normally have some kind of eggs and I'll switch it up. And then I will usually have, this sounds elaborate, but it does not take long at all. It only takes five minutes in the oven. I will just toss some kale and cherry tomatoes and mixed seeds with some olive oil and a pinch of salt and put it in the oven for five minutes and, and have that with my egg. And it's such a nice way to start the day. I am with you. I love eggs.
0: My brain is kind of blown here. There is just so much information, honestly.
2: (laughs) For our lovely listeners, where might we find you? I am on Instagram and you can find me at Katie Bradbury Health. Um, That's Katie with a Y. I'm on Facebook as well. I do have a Facebook group. It's called Fertility and the First 1000 Days. Where could people find that checklist that you referred to earlier on? It is available on my website. So if you go to katiebradbury.com, Forward slash services hyphen resources. It is there as a downloadable. We'll put that on our show notes. I just want to say a massive, massive thank you for coming on the show.
0: We very much appreciate your time. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Katie. So, Maria, who will we be speaking to next week?
0: Next week, we have another fantastic guest, Sarah from IVF Babble. IVF Babble is the go-to platform for everything fertility related. And Sarah also has her very own personal story that she will be sharing with us. It's going to be a good one. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week. And please rate, comment, and really importantly, share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who is struggling and they may need that little bit of extra help.
1: This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.